Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bibles at this point in time? If you don't have your own, you can grab a, a Bible that should be in the pew back in front of you. And let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Excuse me, chapter 4. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, page 785, if you're using the Pew Bible, as I am. Matthew, chapter 4, as we continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom. Of course, this was a a video from the Bible TV series and their display of the events in Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, as this morning we see the King's adversary, the King's adversary the temptation of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4. Hope you're there. Let's pray. We'll dive in. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching and teaching and hearing and living out of your word through the power of your spirit that we we might make much of your son, Jesus. Jesus, this morning we come and we see the account of your testing from the Father and your temptation by your adversary. And there's so much that we can learn about who you are and how we can learn from your example as your followers to also fight temptation in our own hearts and lives. Thank you that you were victorious over Satan in this particular temptation and that you were victorious over him at the cross and at your resurrection. We are so grateful that you are our sinless, spotless King and Savior our example, and our power. So help us, we pray this morning, in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Well, there's a story told of a high school football practice. And at this particular high school football practice, uh, there was uh, an offensive line and a defensive line, and they were doing lineman drills. And so there was a a, a seasoned veteran, and he was an offensive lineman. A seasoned veteran, he was a senior captain on the team, a very good player. And so he just happened to be lined up with a freshman, a, fresh, a freshman on the defensive line, and they were doing some individual drills, and they were preparing to, to go against each other, mano y mano, as my football coach said it many, many years ago. And so they were getting geared up to do that, and uh, this young freshman defensive lineman was starting to run his mouth, and he was talking smack, and he was telling the senior how he was going to beat him and what he was going to do, and he was just giving him a a lot of smack talk, and so they lined up against one another, and just before the whistle blew, the senior looked at him and said, son, you're writing a check with your mouth that your body can't cash. Get it? You're writing a check with your mouth that your body can't cash. You know, if you recall back in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew, there was a lot of talking being done, wasn't there? There was a lot of things being said about who Jesus was. You may remember that Jesus himself said that he fulfills all righteousness. What did John the Baptist say about this man? John the Baptist said, you don't need to come to me for baptism, right? I need to come to you. You don't need any repentance. You're the sinless, spotless Son of God. What did Jesus' father say about his son? He said, you are my son, and in you I am well pleased. So there has been a lot of talk in chapter 3 in the Gospel of Matthew about the person of Jesus. And if we were coming at this like we've never heard it before, the question that Matthew wants to elicit in our mind about the person of Jesus is this. 
Is he really all of that? I mean, is he really that good? Does he really need no repentance? Is he really God's son? Is the father continuously pleased with his son because he is the sinless, spotless son of God? See, there's been a lot of talk about who Jesus is. And as we move into chapter 3 in the Gospel of Matthew, there's going to be some action. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going to put his money, so to, his, his money, so to speak, where his mouth is. He's going to prove, he's going to demonstrate indeed that he is the sinless Savior and very Son of God. His victory over Satan's temptation is going to demonstrate, it's going to prove that he is morally fit. He's morally fit to be Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. So, our account begins at verse 1, and it runs through verse 11. And there are two major sections. First of all, let's notice the locale. The locale, or the location, if you will, of the temptation of Jesus. We get some introductory remarks in verses 1 and 2. And then the section closes with the lure of the temptation. In verses 3 through 11, as we see a threefold temptation by uh, by Jesus' adversary, the devil. So we'll look at the location of the temptation. We'll, we'll look at the lure of the temptation. And then we will close with some lessons from the temptation. What are some lessons that we can learn from the temptation of Jesus? Well, let's begin in verse 1 and 2 by looking at the locale. The story begins with some very important details about the setting of Jesus' temptation. We'll take a look at four observations and what we can learn from them. So let's look in the text, if you will, in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So four observations, some four key things that we see. First of all, notice... Jesus was led by whom? Jesus was led by the Spirit of God. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, showing us, number one, that the source of the test was divine. The first thing we see here is that the source of the test was divine. It's interesting, right? Just moments before in chapter 3, we see at Jesus' baptism that the Holy Spirit came out of heaven in the form of a dove and descended and rested upon him. In the very next moment, that same Spirit of God is compelling him into the wilderness for a period of, of testing. The source of the test was divine. Secondly, the side of the test was descriptive. The side of the test was descriptive. Notice this observation. Jesus went, the text says, where? What was the location of his temptation? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert. The site of the test is telling us something. See, just as, G, just as, as God led Israel in the Old Testament, whom he called his son, just as God led Israel, his son, out of Egypt, through the waters of the Red Sea, and into the wilderness for a time of testing, so he will do with his very son. He will lead Jesus, his true son, 
out of Egypt as a child, Matthew tells us, through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness for a time of testing. See, this location is meant to trigger Old Testament imagery. Just as Israel went through the test and failed, Jesus, God's son, will go through the test and succeed. So incidentally, if you recall, how long was Israel tested in the desert? How long did they stay in that wilderness? 40 years, right? The Bible tells us 40 years. So incidentally, how long was Jesus tested in the desert? Not 40 years, but 40 what? 40 days. It's not a coincidence. Where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. He is the ultimate Israelite, if you will. So, where Jesus will succeed is by providing what we desperately need. By providing what every Jew needs, what we all need, the perfect obedience in the face of temptation. He will succeed and provide this righteousness for us. See, where we fail and where Israel failed in, te- in, in facing our adversary in his, temp- in, in his temptation, Jesus won't fail. He will succeed. So we've seen the, the source of the test. It was divine. The side of the test was meant to be descriptive. Third, the surrogate of the test was demonic. The surrogate of the test was demonic. We see that Jesus was tested by God, but he was tempted, the text tells us, by the devil. Now we need to understand what this word translated here in the NIV, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted. We need to understand a bit about this word to understand the dual nature of what's going on. See, this word can mean, it can refer to positively speaking, a test. That is a test of character, a test of obedience. It can refer positively to a test of obedience, but it can also refer in the Bible to what would be commonly translated a temptation. That is a seduction to sin. Now, what do we know about God from James chapter 1, verse 13? We know that God doesn't tempt anyone in that sense. He doesn't, he doesn't seduce anyone to sin, the Bible tells us, but we also learn from the Bible that he tests our obedience and that he tests our obedience to him uh, from the world, from our flesh, and from the devil. And in this instance, we see that God the Father was testing his son through the surrogate, if you will, of Satan. So, here, God intends to test. It's evidenced by the Spirit's leading, while Satan intends to tempt. So the source of the test was divine. The site of the test was descriptive. The, The surrogate of the test was demonic. And fourth, the survival of the test was dependence. The survival of the test was through Jesus's dependence. Notice, Jesus prepared for this temptation. How did he do it? What does the Bible say? Take a look at verse 2. How did Jesus prepare for this period of testing and temptation? Notice verse 2. After what? Fasting. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That has to be the biggest understatement in the Bible, right? 40 days, 40 nights, and he was hungry. Of course he was. The survival of the test was dependent. See, here in Matthew, we are simply told that after 40 days of fasting from food, that he became hungry. 
Now, his physical hunger, the physical hunger pains that Jesus endured was a necessary part of the test, as we'll see here shortly. It was a necessary part of the test, but it wasn't just a part of the test. It was a tool. It was a tool that Jesus was using to have victory in the test. Once again, we see Old Testament imagery here. If we knew our Old Testament, we would remember two particular individuals in the Old Testament that also fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. If you recall, Moses, the giver of the law, we are told fasted 40 days and 40 nights. We are told Elijah, the epitome of the prophets, fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So what are we being told? This is Old Testament imagery. We are being told that Jesus He is the fulfillment of the law, Moses, right? He's the fulfillment of the prophets, Elijah. Just as they fasted, Jesus fasts. So we've seen some details about the locale of his temptation in verses 1 and 2. Let's get into the bulk of the text and see the lure of the temptations of Jesus. Starting in verse 3, we see temptation number 1. Satan brings to Jesus a threefold enticement, if you will. And the first is found in verse 3. Notice, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I think a better translation than if you are the Son of God is since you are the Son of God. See, Satan didn't doubt or question that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and he is trying to use this fact to tempt Jesus. He says, since you are the Son of God, that is, since you have the power to create bread from stones, do so right now. Do it right now. Provide for yourself. You're hungry, aren't you? 40 days without food is a long time. So just do it. See, the first temptation is over a simple physical need. Satan is enticing Jesus to rebel against his father's revealed will for his life. He wanted Jesus to act independently of his father. See, it wasn't time yet. There was a time for eating, and there was a time for fasting. And it wasn't the time to eat. And yet Jesus was hungry. It was a legitimate need. And Satan wanted him to meet that legitimate need in an illegitimate way. In the first temptation, Satan essentially says, God doesn't care about you. He won't provide for you. So just go out and take care of yourself. How does Jesus respond to this? We see how he does in verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, in response, Jesus quotes the Bible. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Here, chapter 8, verse 3. And there in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3, we see that God is telling us He's telling his people the ultimate reason why he let Israel go hungry in the desert. It's hearkening back to the time. Remember, God let his first son, the nation of Israel, go hungry. He he allowed them to have hunger pains. Why? 
Well, in the Deuteronomy 8.3, we're told why. It was so that they would realize that God is the provider, but that he does so according to his timetable, and that we are not self-sufficient. We are not ultimately self-sufficient. The great British pastor of about a century ago, Charles Spurgeon, he once said about Britain's superior navy at the time, they were uh, the, the, the superior uh, power in the sea at the time that he preached and had his ministry. And he once wrote about their navy and Britain's trust in their navy. And he, he, he once said this, he says, does Britain rule the, rule the waves? Does Britain rule the waves? And he said this, let Britain step out on the waters and then see if she rules them. What is he saying? He's saying that God is the ultimate ruler. He is the ultimate provider. We are not ultimately self-sufficient. So Jesus, like Israel of old, he doesn't grumble. Unlike Israel of old, he doesn't grumble. He doesn't rebel against God during a time of hunger, but he trusts God to provide for him in God's timing. He refuses to act independently of his father's will. So temptation number one is gone. But there is a second, and it follows right on the heels of number one in verses five through seven. It immediately follows verse five. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, right, since you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written. What is Satan doing here? He's, he's, he's quoting the Bible. Take note. For it is written, he, referring to God, will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan steps up his game here, so to speak. Satan takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple complex, which towered some 170 feet above the Kidron Valley below. And he says, since you are God's son, since you are God's anointed one, since you do trust in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, if that's true, then jump. Jump. Throw yourself down. Because in Psalm 91, God promises that his angels will miraculously save you as a demonstration to all that you are indeed God's anointed Messiah. That's what Satan is telling Jesus. Interestingly enough, some rabbis at that particular time period wrote that when Israel's Messiah appeared to them, uh, would appear to them that he would reveal himself and appear on the top of the temple complex. Isn't that interesting? So, Satan tempts Jesus to claim his crown before God's anointed time. See, friends, what this is, what, G, what, what Satan is tempting Jesus with, what he's offering him is kingship without a crown. Kingship, excuse me, without a cross. A crown without a cross. He quotes, interestingly enough, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which, which in the context speaks of God upholding those who trust in him. Jesus, of course, trusted in his heavenly father. So Satan says, says this. He says, Jesus, if, if you live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, I'm going to quote scripture. 
at you. If you live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, why not jump? And here's the point. Why not test God's faithfulness to his word? That is what Satan wants Jesus to do. Why not test God? Put him to the test. This is what God's word seemingly says. So put him to the test. But isn't it interesting that Satan leaves out a little part of Psalm 91, verse 11. He reads a part of it, but he doesn't read all of it. Psalm 91, 11 reads this way. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, and then here's the part that was left off, to guard you in all your ways. To guard you in all of your ways. And the idea is that God will guard you and protect you if your ways are his ways. Now let me ask you this question. Was what Satan wanting Jesus to do, was that God's way? No, it wasn't. Satan twists the verse to essentially say that you can get God to do anything you want, as if he was some genie in the bottle, as opposed to you doing it God's way and him sovereignly protecting you. So friends, take note. Satan knows the Bible too, and he wants to twist it. He wants to twist it to deceive us. But he couldn't deceive Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Here, chapter 6, verse 16. And there in the context, it refers to Israel's testing of God. It refers to an incident where, where Israel was in the wilderness, and they were thirsty. They were in the wilderness of Meribah. They were in the wilderness of Meribah and Massa, and they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to Moses, give us water. We're thirsty. They tested the Lord. They didn't trust that he would provide them with water. They wanted proof. They wanted evidence from Moses, from God, that God, catch this, would do what he said he would do. Sound familiar? That's what Satan was wanting Jesus to do. Satan wanted Jesus to test the Lord, just like Israel did of old. So, think of it this way. Um, Some of you are parents, some of you uh, are children, and so we all have some experience with kids and parents. So, let's say you're a parent and you tell your child to do something. Let's say you say, go clean your room, and uh, they still are doing this. So, after one minute, you say, hey, go clean your room. And so they put the device down and they kind of get a drink of milk from the water. What do you say? Hey, go clean your room. And then you say, don't test me. If you don't clean your room, you're going to be grounded, right? You give a consequence. If you don't do this, then this happens. Now, surely that never has come out of your mouth. And kids, surely your parents have never said that to you. But it does occasionally happen. And, And parents, what do you say? Don't test me. Let's say you're in the car, right, and they're misbehaving. This is a famous line, right? What do you say? Don't test me. I will, I will stop this car, right? I will pull over this very moment, right? Don't test me. This is what Satan wanted Jesus to do. He wanted Jesus to test God. God, are you going to do what your, the scripture seemingly says, even though he twisted it? Jesus didn't fall for it. 
He didn't make God act according to his will. He trusted in his Father's will. So, two temptations have come and gone. But there is a third, verses 8 through 10. The final temptation begins in verses 8 through 9. Again, the scripture says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Verse 9, All this I will give you, he said, if, just a small if, if you will bow down and worship me. So, in this final temptation, Satan essentially is getting desperate. He lays all of his cards on the table, so to speak. He offers Jesus rule, kingship, if you will, over all of the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship, in exchange for idolatry. Interestingly enough, Jesus, in John chapter 12, verse 31, calls Satan, quote, the ruler of this world. So there is a sense in which Satan's offer was legitimate. Satan's offer was legitimate. You recall the moment, if you have seen the original Star Wars, talking about the old ones that were made in the 80s, the the good ones, right? this, This pivotal moment when Darth Vader is tempting Luke Skywalker. Of course, we all know Luke is his son, right? And he's tempting him to join him and to come to the dark side. He says, I'm not going to do Darth Vader because I can't do it. There's power in the dark side. There's power in the dark side. Luke, join me. And together we can what? Remember? Rule the galaxy. Together we can rule the galaxy. This this is sort of what Satan was seemingly offering Jesus, a co-regency over the kingdoms of the world. Now, what's ironic about this? What is terribly ironic about this is that had, had God the Father offered Jesus, Israel's Messiah, a kingdom, a coming kingdom in which he would rule over the entire world? Yes or no? Yes. In places like Psalm 2, we see it very clearly in Revelation chapter 11. God the Father has promised to give Jesus everlasting dominion and control over all the kingdoms, but but only as the suffering Savior who endured the cross first. This is similar to the last temptation, as Satan offers Jesus a kingdom without a cross. It's a blatant, last-ditch effort to derail Jesus from his Father's will and plan. So Jesus responds in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. With his temptation and testing complete, he had passed. Jesus commands Satan to leave, just as James tells us. And he does. And this is an important point. This is something we need to remember in this temptation scene. Jesus commands him to leave, and he does. And he does. What does that remind us? What what does that tell us? Remember, friends, this is not an even fight, right? This is not an even fight. These are not two co-equals sparring in the ring. This is the creator of the universe versus a created being. This is God 
versus a fallen angel. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, the late great professor at Dallas Seminary, once likened the temptation to, to quote, a rowboat attacking a battleship. Oh, this is a great image, isn't it? This is a rowboat attacking a battleship. It's a real attack. The rowboat might have every intention to attack the battleship. But friends, is, he, is, is the rowboat going to win? No. The, probably not. That's right. <laughs> the rowboat will not win. Very good. Satan will not win. He defends himself again by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. That God is to be worshipped alone. See, Jesus would receive the kingdom, but in God's timetable and in God's way, by defeating Satan, not by worshipping him. First here in the temptation, and ultimately in the cross, and in his resurrection. So, the account closes in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. A wonderful picture of the Heavenly Father's tender and compassionate care for his son. So we've seen the locale and the lure of the temptations. Let's close our time this morning by turning to the lessons from the temptation of Jesus. What is there for us in this account? I wish I had 30 more minutes. There is so much more. First of all, let me ask the first question. Well, two, two questions will kind of shape this final section. Question number one, what do we learn about Jesus? So what can we learn about Jesus from his temptation? Question number two, what can we learn about our own fight with temptation? In other words, what can we learn from Jesus' example? Number one, what do we learn about Jesus from his temptation? First, we learn that Jesus is a qualified Savior. He is a qualified Savior. So here's the question that Matthew is trying to answer. Is Jesus morally qualified to be our sinless, spotless Savior? And how does he answer that question, church? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, he is. So friends, when we die, and we all will die, if we die as Christians under the shadow of the cross, with our personal trust and faith in this man, this qualified Savior, we can trust him to get us into heaven. See, at conversion, when we place our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. With Jesus' perfect obedience, including here in the temptation, the entirety of his life, his perfect obedience to the Father, we are credited, our account is credited with that righteousness. One pastor compared, he used this illustration, and it's a good one, so I'm going to steal it. He, he, compared it uh, he compared it to using a credit card at a car wash. So just imagine you're, you're going to the car wash and you want to use a credit card. So you slide the card in, and it says something like, checking credit, checking credit, checking credit. It wants to see if, you're, if, if the credit is sufficient enough to get you in. And after a while, uh, it, it, it says, credit accepted credit accepted, you may proceed, and what do you see? There's a green light, and you go in, and you get your car wash, right? Uh, This pastor likens getting into heaven like that. He says, when when we stand at at heaven's gates, and we claim the righteousness of Christ, God says, why should I let you into this place? And we say, I trust in Jesus and his perfect life. My life is sinful and and, and full of uh, filthy rags. I'm not good enough, but 
I trust in this one who lived a perfect life for me. He says, well, well, friends, we might see on the pearly gates a little sign that says checking credit. Checking credit. Checking credit. And then what will happen if we've trusted in Christ? It will say what? Credit approved. Credit approved. Credit approved. Because we enter heaven on the credited righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is a qualified Savior whose righteousness is credited to our account to gain us entrance into heaven. And so before we close, and we're heading there, I want to ask you a question. Friends, what are you trusting in to get you into heaven? If it is anything, then the credited account of Jesus Christ, his righteousness for your sinfulness, then friends, you will not hear the words credit approved. Credit approved. It will say credit denied. Credit denied. Because only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. So friends, What are you trusting in today? My prayer is that you would trust in the qualified Savior, Jesus. Number two, not only is Jesus a qualified Savior, but he is a sympathetic Savior. He's a sympathetic Savior. Friends, what we mean is that Jesus has been tempted as we are tempted. He, as our substitute, can be our substitute because he has been tempted like us in every way and has defeated that temptation. Hebrews says that because of that, in our moment of temptation, we can go to him. We can trust in him. We can ask him for help. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been, you listening? Tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. So what should we do when we're tempted? Well, he tells us in verse 16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, when we are facing temptations, whom else should we go to but the one who has been in our shoes and has overcome? Who else should we seek help from but him? See, Jesus, praise God, Jesus is not like Clark Kent. You know who I'm talking about, Clark Kent. He's who? Superman, right? Jesus is not like Superman. See, Superman looks like one of us. He looks like a human being, but is he a human being? No, he's an alien from outer space, and he just happens to look like us. See, Superman looks like us, but he's not one of us. He can't be a sympathetic Savior. He can't sympathize with our failings and our weaknesses. He doesn't understand what it means to be human. But friends, does Jesus? Yes. Yes, he does. He is fully human, fully God. He is a sympathetic Savior. So go to him, Christian, in times of need. Second, what do we learn about our fight with temptation from Jesus? Lots and lots and lots. Let me just boil it down to four things. Number one, a test from God can also be a temptation from Satan. Verse one, what circumstance, let me ask you this question, what circumstance might God's providence allow you to be in that could be a test from God and a temptation 
from Satan. That is, it might be a test from God. He wants to know if you will persevere in the midst of it, if you will pursue obedience throughout its time. But it might also be a temptation from Satan. Satan wants you to sin because of this trial. Maybe it's a job loss or a financial setback. Maybe it's some kind of stress in your marriage. Maybe it's a challenging child or some kind of health issue that you might be going on. Here's the question. Will you turn towards God in faith? pursuing obedience in the matter, or will you allow Satan to tempt you to doubt and to despair and to disobedience? Number two, tests and temptations often come during periods in the desert. Verse one, it is fascinating to me that here and in numerous other places in the Bible, that the Bible often associates testing with times in the desert. A harsh, demanding, stressful, dangerous, difficult terrain. See, like temptations came for Jesus, they often come for us when we are most vulnerable. Forty days without food. When are you most vulnerable? May it be physically vulnerable or spiritually vulnerable, psychologically, emotionally vulnerable. Otherwise, we need to know when we are most vulnerable because... Guys, Satan may have a bullseye for us in that particular moment. Know it. Be watchful. Number three, fight temptation with fasting and truth. Fight temptation with fasting and truth. Here we see these spiritual disciplines, lo and behold, I know we just talked about them a few weeks ago, they come up again. Fasting, Bible reading, and scripture memory team up in Jesus' approach to temptation. And if that's a good approach for Jesus to fight temptation— you think it's a good idea for us? I think so. I think so. So have you tried, let me just ask you, have you tried the discipline of fasting since our latest sermon? Remember, we talked about it a while ago. I'm sure you remember every detail of that sermon. Have you tried it? Have you, have you pursued this discipline? Why not give it a shot? Particularly, use Bible memory or Bible reading or meditation alongside with it. Why not find... Bible verses that might speak to your particular temptation. So if you struggle with anxiety, find some scriptures. If you find some, if you struggle with lust, find some scriptures. Let me give you a, a site. Fighterverses.com, F-I-G-H-T-E-R verses.com, associated with the ministry of Pastor John Piper. You have there a whole host of Bible verses categorized according to need. It's a wonderful resource. Go check it out. Fight temptation with fasting and truth. And number four, watch for Satan's lies. Watch for his lies. Friends, Jesus heard the same fundamental lies that we do from Satan. So the lies that he told Jesus, in some way, shape, or form, most likely he will tell us. Here's some of the lies, if I could put them on his lips, so to speak. Lies like, God can't provide for you. God doesn't care about you. You can't wait on him. You can't trust him. How about this one? Lies like, if it's painful, it can't be from God. Or, if it's of God, it will happen soon, right now. Or how about this one? Always go the way that is least painful. How about that one? These are all lies whispered from the mouth of Satan to Jesus. And friends, I think he whispers the same lies to us as well. So in closing, 
we've seen this first great section of Matthew and we're almost done. You see the chart behind me. This first major section, the person of the king. We'll close it next week with the inauguration of the king. This last section as Jesus begins his ministry. We'll see his message, the men that he calls, and how he does his ministry. Let's pray. And we'll be